Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. If you were any kind of nerd in the 1980s, you're familiar with Chris Claremont's run on the Uncanny X-Men. It was the best one. It had the best characters. It had the best storylines. It was the most engrossing comic book. It was the best-selling comic book of the 1980s. And if you're any kind of nerd in the 1990s, the aughts, or the 2010s, you're familiar with the legacy of Chris Claremont's run on the Uncanny X-Men. Operatic character arcs, strong female leads, an emphasis on personal relationships, all of those have found their way into the television shows and movies that we all watch. Professor Andrew DeMann is studying Claremont's work in The Claremont Run, an academic project which is funded by Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, which explores the impact of Claremont's Uncanny X-Men run on the representation of gender and sexuality in comics and on long continuity in modern entertainment. Andrew and I discuss how to think about Claremont's legacy, his collaboration with artists and editors, and how readers can best approach The Claremont Run. One quick reference point for one of the items that we talk about in our conversation. Professor DeMann refers to the Bechdel test. The Bechdel test is named after the American cartoonist Alison Bechdel and is a measure of the representation of women in fiction. It asks whether a work features at least two women who talk to each other about something other than a man. As you'll hear, Claremont's work scores high on the Bechdel test, an indication of how progressive it was and remains. All right, Professor Andrew DeMann, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. I'm glad we're getting the chance to have this chat. So what is the Claremont Run Project and why Chris Claremont? So um, the project is just a really big university study on Chris Claremont. That's that's really what it boils down to, specifically on his run on Uncanny X-Men and spinoffs from 1975 to 1991. He, w- he would do a lot of other work, obviously. We focused on that. It started out as a data-driven project, so gathering um, content analysis data, which is unusual in the humanities, but becoming much more popular, though I still encounter a lot of people who are like, why are there charts and graphs in in your literary analysis? And I'm like, leave me alone. Uh, And then it became a big kind of social media thing, Mm because I wanted to do something that was um, engaged. And I think in comic studies in particular, like a lot of uh, um, scholars ignore fan communities, who have been doing the work for like three decades at least. Um, so, so being able to participate in that, to dialogue with the creators sometimes, with the fans, with the readers, um, that has meant a lot to me. So now that, that that's where we are. Eventually it's a book um, which should be coming out next year from the University of Texas Press. Oh, great. And see where it goes from there. Fantastic. And so why Chris Claremont and his run on Uncanny X-Men? Like why, out of all of the sort of writers and all of the runs and all of the titles that you could have focused on, why was that one the one that was seemed of most interest? Yeah. So, so for the method we developed with um, um, the quantitative component, you need a big sample. Uh, and Claremont is just about the biggest. It's a 16-year run. It's the longest author run in Marvel Comics history. So that that was a big appeal to me. And then in terms of his contribution and quality you look at what he did for representation in comics you you look at what he did in terms of his impact on long continuous storytelling which has become pivotal to this generation of like you know netflix tv writers uh and and you look at um what he did in terms of character consistency and voice and and quality um and he's he's at another level he's he's doing some amazing things um, compared to a lot of his contemporaries. Amazing. So there's a lot in there I want to kind of pull on because those are, you, you've hit on a lot of the topics and, and kind of themes that I wanted, uh, I've already sort of uh, written down my questions for. So 
<laughs> I mean, just in terms of how prolific he is, it is sort of astonishing, right? Like, I mean, so he has the 15, 16 year run on Uncanny X-Men and, and for listeners who aren't that familiar with the comics industry, I mean, that means every month for 15 years, he's coming out with at least one issue of a 22 page comic book. And for much of the run, he was writing other titles in addition to, you know, like New Mutants or miniseries in annuals. And it's just, it, it's kind of fascinating to see somebody create, you know, that kind of volume for that extended period of time. And I, I think you touched on this a little bit, but it does that sort of mark him out in terms of his contemporaries, just in terms of how prolific he was? Yeah, I think I think there's two factors at play. Um, um, one is just industry standards where you rotate your writers. Uh, like, like a long run in contemporary comics now is three years. Five is almost unheard of. Right. Um, 16 is ludicrous. It, it couldn't happen. Um, so, so there's that, but there's also his personal attachment to the characters. He could have made so much more money. Like if you study what was happening at Marvel and DC Comics at the time and the way that writers would basically bounce back and forth in order to leverage themselves to better contracts and to more money, Claremont could have done that easily. He could have gone to DC and said, I'll write Teen Titans for you for a while and push out Marvel or something, which would be bad. But he didn't. He was too in love with his characters up to the point where when they were pushing him out, he was the best selling comics writer in the world at the time. And they were pushing him out. And what they did was they said the most humiliating thing possible. We won't let you write the plots anymore, but we will let you script the stuff that the other people write. And he went along with that for like a couple months wow. before it broke his spirit. Yeah, no, he, he was attached. Like, like his first novel that he published is dedicated to the characters from X-Men by oh. first name, which is really charming. So no, yeah. he, he was in their heads. He wouldn't leave. They had <laughs> now, I mean, to be fair, I mean, they had good reason to keep him around. I mean, as you noted, he was selling like the best selling or he was writing the best selling comic book. Uh, and really that entire wedge of the Marvel Universe really came to the fore in terms of popularity and, and kind of impact on the industry. I, I do want to talk about, I, I've always been sort of interested in sort of how things end and what happens after sort of something falls out of the public consciousness or the narrative. And I remember when he stopped writing Uncanny X-Men, and I think it was Todd McFarlane who afterwards sort of in observation said something along the lines of like, can you believe these bastards? Like the guy writes the best-selling comic of all time and then they dump him and they don't even have the courtesy to give him like a farewell notice. Like they didn't even mention it on the, on the letters page. Like it was just like one month he was writing it. And then the next month he's not. What did he do after the run finishes? He did some very cool stuff. Um, he, he bounced around a little bit. Like he did some writing for DC. He would later come back and write for Marvel. He would later become a story editor at Marvel. Um, one of their, their main story editors, though I believe that was like a weird accreditation. Uh, he, he wrote novels. He worked with George Lucas, <laughs> you know, what I mean? um, he was all over the place uh, and he came back, but the situation was, was very different at the time. He, he pitched um, a storyline or sorry, a comic to image that didn't quite take off because of problems with the illustrator. Um, yeah, no, he, he never stopped. Right. He just wasn't allowed <laughs> sole control of that property ever again. Right. And when he comes back and, and starts writing X-Men comics again, I mean, does he continue sort of a lot of the same, exploring a lot of the same themes and storylines that, that were part of the run that you're looking at? No, it's, mm. I mean, some of them for sure. Mm. Like there's, there's a lot there, but one of the main reasons they pushed Claremont out was because he wasn't interested in status quo. 
he, he wanted to tell new stories. And if you see him in an interview, like he's, he's very gracious about that. He says like, I get it. Marvel wanted to tell these old fashioned X-Men stories. I just didn't. I, I'd been you know doing it for so long. Um, so when he comes back, he's trying to revolutionize again. He doesn't have the same creative team. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't have Louise Simonson. He doesn't have Anne Nascenti. Uh, and, and as a result of that, it, it's a little bit different. I, and I think a lot of people, when he came back, they were actually, again, hoping for a return to the old. And again, he didn't want to do that. Uh, so I, I don't know. There's good stuff in there for sure in some of his return material. And he's had impact on comics, even if you discount the Claremont run, uh, the, the original one that we study. Uh, but definitely not as well received, as well lauded. Um, not the kind of comics material that are showing up on university course syllabi the way that his run has been for at least 20 years. Right. Okay. So let's go back then to sort of the heart of the run and, and the heart of the, the analysis that your project's undertaking. How can we think about him comparatively? So if we're looking at sort of the late seventies and into the eighties, the form is really maturing in a lot of ways. You have a lot of people like Alan Moore, let's say Grant Morrison, who are becoming heralded as you know the leading writers in the, at least in the superhero genre, where does he fit in that sort of constellation of, of writers? Yeah, um, bit, bit anomalous for sure. I think a lot of people, when they look to this era, they're looking to the independent comic scene for a lot of the creative energy. And I've said this before, I do think Claremont was largely a victim of his own success in terms of critical reception. The idea being, I'm a scholar, I'm not going to study the most popular comic of the time. Uh, I'm going to dig deep and find the Hernandez brothers who deserve to be found, obviously. Um, but but so too does Claremont, right? I mean, he, th that's kind of one of the things that I find absolutely the most remarkable about him, that he's doing all of the stuff representation-wise and innovation-wise. And it's not just that it's working, it's that it's the best-selling comic in the world for about a decade. Right. You know what I mean? Like, like the idea that you can innovate like that and not be avant-garde. Uh, like like avant-garde literally means the first to die. They're the front guard. They're the ones who don't get to survive the battle. And Claremont was winning um, despite, again, we're talking about the first canonically Jewish character, or sorry, first canonically Jewish superhero. We're talking about the first African-American leader of a superhero team, the first female leader of a superhero team, all manner of queer subtext, all these things that should have made him fail and he didn't fail. I, I, I find that fascinating so he, he's got to be in the conversation early comic scholars were talking about him i'm talking like i'm roger sabin um, um blanking on the name uh, uh stephen weiner and richard reynolds and then everybody kind of got fascinated by the big three narrative which is mouse uh watchman and dark knight returns and claremont leaves the conversation for about a decade mm. uh, and then in the last five to six years comic scholarship is caught back up and they're like oh crap we forgot this guy uh, and now we have a whole lot of people working on chris claremont including some brilliant scholars uh, we, we got stephanie burt out of harvard putting together cool claremont projects and uh, we've got um, my friend and colleague anna papard uh, who's doing uh, amazing things uh, with claremont's representational stuff in things like excalibur right and so when we Talk about, you've described it as innovative, like the, the attention that he brought to representation and, you know, issues about, you know, gender and, and uh, racism and the, the, his sort of, I think what he gets tagged with a lot or what it, the X-Men gets tagged with a lot is that sort of metaphor of, of mutant superheroes as kind of a comment on, on the American race situation. To what extent is that 
I don't want to use the word intentional, but to what extent is that is his formal innovation his project? And to what extent can we say, oh, well, actually, you know, it was there were other people that were putting like it was the editors that were putting that forward. Is this entirely his initiative or how does that sort of play out? Yeah, that's tricky, right? Trying to, to disambiguate where this stuff is coming from. Um, we did lots of tests, as I said. <laughs> this is why the numbers help. No one cares about the numbers, but I can point at the numbers and say, look. Uh, so we did the Bechdel test uh, on Claremont's entire run, um, which is a contested theory. Everyone says the Bechdel test doesn't prove positive female representation. No, it does not. Uh, but it does prove the absence thereof on a large enough sample. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. So we Bechdel test Claremont. He's um, His peak, he's 100% for a year. Uh, his overall average is, I think, 80-something, 84. Uh, and then we did like a comparative analysis of his contemporaries at Marvel, every Marvel comic writer, including Claremont. So, so they were actually getting credit for him. Um, and it's half of, of what he was getting, sometimes significantly less. So he was way ahead of his contemporaries. And again, I can show that on a graph. Right. Uh, but I can also show on a graph how his own Bechdel numbers go up when Louise Simonson comes on board. Uh, and how they go up again when Macenti comes on board and they go down again when Harris takes over. Um, so yeah, I, I think Claremont is fortunate in a lot of ways. He's a product of circumstance. He's a product of brilliant collaborators. Um, it's not really one guy doing everything, but, but certainly he's a major factor, a major variable. Hence why we named the project after him and hence why we sort of divide our sample as his right. sample. Right. Well, wow, that's fascinating that you can sort of pull that sort of empirically you can pull that out of the out of the text and, and make those sorts of observations so talking about his collaborators for a second i mean the the women that you just mentioned were his editors he had a series of artists that he worked with is there a way and and you know some of them are like some of the biggest names in the industry like like john byrne and and john romita jr and jim lee can the the claremont run be sort of divided into different eras based on who the artist is that he's working with yeah, I think so. I, I think you have to, right, to acknowledge the collaborative nature of comics art. Uh, and, and we see that in, in a lot of different ways. Like maybe a simple example I could give is X-Men becomes, X-Men's regarded as a soap opera, right? That, that's the way that a lot of people talk about it. It's kind of not until Paul Smith shows up. Uh, and the reason it becomes more of a soap opera when Paul Smith shows up is because Paul Smith is glorious at doing things like gesture and expression and posture in a way that John Byrne or Dave Cockrum can't. Uh, so Claremont adapts, right? He, he's got this guy who can make these personal uh, interrelationship scenes actually kind of interesting. So he writes to it. Uh, and then Silvestri comes on board, who's like the biggest Frank Frazetta disciple ever. Uh, and the Outback era occurs, which is grim and gritty and sandy. Uh, and, and again, you can clearly see Claremont writing to the strengths of his, of his artists. And that's, that's the nature of collaboration, right? Right. And so is he, so for listeners who, who again, maybe aren't as familiar with how comics are, are created, is he writing full script or is he sort of writing Marvel style or how, how is he like sort of mechanically collaborating with his artists? There is a little bit of variation. Um, um, obviously he was co-plotting with Byrne. That's an important one to acknowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and he was at the very end co-plotting with Lee uh, and um, a few others. I don't, know if he worked with Nisheza directly or not. Um, he might have. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, he, he outlines his plots sometimes three years in advance, which is right. really cool to see because no one would have the audacity to even try that today. Right. 
uh, and then he fills them in progressively, makes a few changes. But that's actually a really cool thing. Most of it, most of his three-year outlines hold up. Huh. He, he, he didn't he didn't modify them. He, he brought them to fruition the way they kind of were. He is notorious for sending his artists a whole lot of notes. Uh, Mar- Mark Silvestri has talked about this, like like not on the art itself, but like the scripts he would get from Claremont are enormous. Hmm. And you you would have like more pages of text than there was like a page of a comic, uh, which is kind of <laughs> cool and probably frustrating for right. an artist, but, or maybe very nice if you want to know exactly what your writer is looking for. Right. Um, so yeah, no, he, that, that's his main method. It's, as I said, it shifts a little bit depending on who he's collaborating with and what their strengths are. Um, but generally speaking, he, I would say he was very um, deliberative uh, in terms of um, bringing his vision to the page. Okay. Great. And you sort of alluded to this earlier, but what are the, like, how can we trace his influence? What do we see in the sort of generation of writers that come up after him and, and who, you know, people who are writing now? How could, are there things that we can point to and say, oh yeah, like that's a sort of, that's Chris Claremont's lineage right there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the soap opera mechanic in a superhero format, that's pretty unusual. So you can see direct influence. And like, again, Marv Wolfman has talked about this. Like that's what Teen Titans was. Uh, it was our version of X-Men uh, and, and trying to do that. Um, so you can see it in comics, all the comics creators, actually a lot of comics creators that interact with us on the Claremont run social media feed talk about his influence all the time, which is lovely. But then you can go broader than that and look at media directly. Uh, and, and like Joss Whedon has talked extensively about Claremont's influence on him. The Duffer brothers who created Stranger Things have talked about Claremont's influence on their work. Uh, and like many, many, many others. Uh, he's someone who was really good at dragging out that interpersonal drama within a non like, like not exact soap opera context, right. not like, you know, working at a hospital or something like that, whatever the basic soap opera premises are, to have like a, an action-y superhero story, but have it be about interrelational dramas. That's Claremontism. Um, Gail Simone um, tweeted about this. She said that there was the real sea change in superhero representation for women was Claremont's X-Men. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, like strong female characters, that's something that Claremont kind of brought to, to comics in his time. And is that, I mean, I don't know if you have access to this kind of data or if anybody has access to this kind of data. Does his his work on representation, his work on sort of foregrounding, you know, strong female leads and, and interpersonal relationship, does that change the composition of the audience? Can we like look at the Uncanny X-Men fandom and say, oh yeah, like it's markedly more female or more diverse or, or whatever sort of, you know, criteria you want to use than say whoever was reading Superman at the same time? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I mean, we talk about like um, market share versus building market. Women weren't reading comics. Marvel in the 1970s, um, Claremont brought in a lot of female readers, hmm. um, which is obviously a good thing. Uh, and um, in particular, he's regarded as bringing in a whole lot of queer readers uh, for a genre that was famous for kind of alienating them and which had like literal restrictions on representing them in the form of the comics code. Uh, so yeah, no, I, I think he was bringing in people from a lot of different places. Um, we would also talk international. Hmm. Uh, X-Men is credited, sorry, the revamped X-Men is credited with being the first comic to crack the international market for the mainstream publishers and hence why again giant sized x-men has characters from all different um, countries uh, claremont didn't do that that was len ween um, but claremont picked up that story and he made those characters interesting uh and kind of worth revisiting i would say so one thing which i've always found fascinating about the comics industry is pulling the lens back a bit and looking at it in broad scope and and correct me if I'm wrong about any of this this is obviously sort of a lay person's observation but 
the industry was in terms of sales sales were at their highest when the sort of literary quality the objective literary quality to the extent we can measure that of the content was sort of arguably at its lowest and <laughs> as it becomes sort of better material like as it becomes a better piece of content better dialogue better plotting more sort of involved interpersonal relationships between the characters sales at some point i mean we can there's all obviously all kinds of exogenous uh, factors here but sales drop off so today like you know when i look today at what might be really well written comics there's not a lot of sales of comics right the comics as or, or superheroes as a genre obviously have uh, been incredibly popular in other media but it, Am I making too much of that? Like, is there is there sort of a, an inverse relationship between quality and sales in that sense? It's a really good question. And it's one that Marvel editors have talked about a lot, mm -hmm. including in recent years and including in Claremont's time. Uh, the theory for why he had to be kicked off the book was because he was being too experimental and they wanted, they wanted the familiar X-Men. They wanted the X-Men live in a mansion. Professor X leads them and they fight Magneto. Uh, so let's just go back to that. Claremont was so far from that. <laughs> Towards the end of his run, there's no X-Men in an X-Men comic, which is kind of <laughs> hilarious. Um, so, so yeah, whether that's a broader industry, like truism or not, I don't know. That fascinates me. Um, it, it's not something that I, I really have the data that I could point to and say, say this or that. But I know editorial believed that in many cases, right? That they right. weren't trying to make literature they were trying to sell funny pages so claremont obviously not on board with that theory <laughs> refused to go along with it that's a nice segue actually into the next question which is to what extent should we be thinking about claremont's work as good literature quay literature versus just thinking about it as oh it's good for comics writing right what's the standard you said mm. what's the bar um i don't know so i think that's going to be subjective and variable for me, someone who's, you know, I did my PhD and I've studied literature and I've taught literature all my life. Uh, it holds up. It holds up very well. And I would compare it to a lot of things. In fact, I frequently compare Shakespeare to, to Claremont because they do a lot of very similar things. And I know he was heavily influenced by Shakespeare. There's a lot of comics, particularly the early parts of the run, that I would look at as good for comics. You know okay. what I mean? And then there's later parts of the run where I'm like, no, this is a profound story. The, the, this is something that that's right up there with, with anything you want to hold it up against. Right. Um, so, so I think it's variable. As I said, Claremont's work has been making its way into university courses for, for quite a while now, not just in terms of like a course on the superhero, but uh, a course on diaspora, a course on masculinity and media and general courses on American literature, which I think is cool. So, so I think, again, you're going to get different answers depending on who you talk to. But I personally would would represent the idea that a lot of what Claremont does is absolutely literature and merits the kind of literary consideration that our project is giving it. Right. But I'm biased. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So I, I guess kind of a, a three part question to the extent these answers are different. I'm, I'm not maybe there's overlap or maybe it's all just one answer. So but for somebody who's interested in diving into the Claremont run, what's like what's a good entry point? And the second point is <laughs> what's what's sort of the best part of the Claremont run? And then 
third, again, to the extent this is any different from the first two, what's your favorite part? Okay. You know, that's really cool because that's really tricky. So, so, so one of the things that spurred the project in our, our, our sort of data gathering was just the Claremont run is not accessible. Do you know what I mean? Mm, like, yeah. like, again, where do you start? Yeah. Uh, it, it's like telling a friend to start watching Game of Thrones in season five <laughs> and, and good luck to you. Like you're not... You're not going to be able to make sense of anything. Um, and that's that's the problem. But of course, that's also the strength of the run, right? That it was continuous like that, that these characters constantly progressed and changed in a way that they haven't since. Pick any three-year period of the Claremont run, and I guarantee you, you will see more change and development to the characters than we have in like the past few decades of X-Men comics. Uh, and again, no offense to Jonathan Hickman. I, I think Hickman's transition to Krakow is brilliant uh, and is the most momentum we've had in a long time. But, but Claremont was, was it's a moving target. So in terms of um, where to jump on, I don't know. Where I recommend is either the Dark Phoenix Saga or the start of the Paul Smith run. I, I think those are the best places to kind of catch on. And I also think that's where the story gains a lot of momentum as a continuous story. That's just my personal kind of like, like recommendation for people. In terms of when it gets really, really good, if you're reading it continuously, uh, which I recommend, like, you know, start at issue 97 and just keep going. If you're reading continuously, I think Inferno is brilliant. The problem is it's the most convoluted, <laughs> complex crossover Marvel's ever done. Right. <laughs> so so you, you really do need to read all the stuff, right? Yeah. Building towards it. If you just want to read like a good comic that Claremont wrote and you, you don't have weeks of your life to donate to it. <laughs> Um, 205, Wounded Wolf, which yeah. is a Wolverine story, is brilliant right. and self-contained and, and works really well in that regard. I think that's, was that all the three parts? That so the third part was, and, and again, I think, <laughs> I mean, you've, you've certainly hinted at it, but what, what's your favorite? Like if, you, if you're if you sort of going to curl up with a, a Chris Claremont set of books, what, what, what what's going to be in there? I think my favorite is a product of studying X-Men too much because <laughs> I really like an era that nobody likes. It's the dissolution era. So this is just after Inferno when... Um, the X-Men are gone. Again, there's no X-Men in the X-Men title. And you have this one random guy, Forge, who like had a crush on Storm for a while. And he was touched by heroism. He, he's got the virus, right? He, he believes in Xavier's dream. And he's like, crap, I'm going to get the X-Men back together. Uh, and it, it's really it, it's really beautiful because he's not a good person. He, he, he's kind of a jerk. He, he's like worse than Tony Stark in a lot of ways. But him just from exposure to her and to the concept of the X-Men and what they represent right. makes him want to be a better person. So he, he tries to put them back together. And I find it fascinating. And um, the Battle of Muir Island is, is a great three-part story. Fantastic. So if people are interested in finding out more about the Claremont Run project in particular, where can they find you and, or, or follow you? Uh, the best place is on Twitter. We are at Claremont Run or just look up Claremont Run. Uh, and, and you'll find us. We're posting daily. We do analysis. We post some of our charts and graphs, uh, interpretation and analysis. Um, yeah, lots and lots of stuff. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you uh, sharing that information with us and your, your insights and, and wisdom there. And this has been great. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com.